Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 40 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast with my good friend Matt Kelly, founder and editor at Radical Compliance. This is the podcast where we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance issue, and today it is the COSO ERM framework, the uh, new information that's recently been uh, released by COSO. Matt talks about his interview of Frank Martins, which is uh, on his website, as well as hearing a speech by Robert Hurth, the head of COSO, about what we can expect from uh, the framework going forward. In the podcast, we talk about the role of culture and risk, the integration of ERM as more than simply a function, uh, leading to it becoming a business capability, and that ERM will work more directly with an organization and one might even say be operationalized within the functional units. We separate out the risk conversation uh, from uh, around ERM from that of the internal control conversation. And we take a look at the complementary nature of the two COSO frameworks. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, back again for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, the editor and founder of Radical Compliance. Matt, welcome. Hello, Tom. Good to be here again. So, Matt, you had a, a very interesting post last week entitled More Details on the COSO ERM Framework. In the post, you embedded a podcast that uh, you did with um, Frank Martins from PwC, who's heading up the uh, COSO ERM framework. And it really had, uh, I thought, some very interesting uh, um, uh, different thoughts and where the framework is going based upon the comments that uh, were made by practitioners uh, last year. <clears throat> so I thought maybe we could um, explore this, uh, where we are now and where we may be at the end of June when I know they uh, they want to try to uh, release a, a final product. But um, uh, first of all, could you tell us who Frank Martins is and uh, why you came to uh, interview him? Sure. So Frank Martins, as you said, he is the project manager at PwC who is working with COSO to build their revised framework for enterprise risk management. Uh, COSO put their very first ERM framework out in 2004. Back then, they never really did much to promote it or show companies what they should be able to do with it. And COSO admits that. So in 2014, I believe it was, they announced that they had ambitions to propose a overhauled COSO ERM framework. Uh, then about one year ago, they proposed, they unveiled their draft. And uh, for anybody listening, if you already know COSO, from its framework for internal control over financial reporting, which is generally what companies use for their Sarbanes-Oxley compliance. Uh, the ERM framework, very similar structure. It has five big components supported by a number of principles. For the internal control framework, there are 17 principles. For the COSO draft, There for the ERM, there were going to be 23. Um, once Frank Martins and his team went through the feedback that everybody gave them over a couple of months, and we can get to what that said, um, they are going to narrow this ERM framework down to 20 principles that will support five components that they are kind of, sort of, 
similar to what the internal control framework tries to get at. They do it in a very different way. These are not the same frameworks. They support each other. Um, but that's where we're going. And uh, PwC had presented a preview of this to the Winnipeg chapter of the Institute of Internal Auditors of all places, um, possibly because Frank Martins is Canadian and he works out of Vancouver. But uh, I had a source who I will not identify on the Winnipeg internal auditing scene who leaked this draft to me. It really was no state secret. Um, I took a look. I called up Frank, said, do you want to talk about it? And he said, sure. He's a great guy. And uh, hence the podcast that's now on my blog um, where he goes into a bit of detail. But that's how it came to pass. So, Matt, there were a couple of things that really uh, struck me about uh, the podcast, uh, and I'll just list them, and then maybe we can bounce them around a bit. The first one was Frank talked about a lot of feedback from practitioners who wanted more uh, more rigor and more robustness around the role of culture and risk. And, and I find that a fascinating discussion, yet uh, I struggle personally with how to put at least a quantifiable, if not more robust, control procedure around that. Did uh, did you get that sense as well? Well, I think that what he is trying to get at, and by a stroke of luck, as I was writing up this podcast, the very next day, the chairman of COSO, Bob Hurth, he was giving a speech in Boston where I am. So I went over and I listened to Bob, and he touched on many of the same points verbally that uh, Frank Martins and I covered in the podcast. They both really are trying to say that it's, it's more about risk awareness throughout the entire company, um, that every department or business function is going to have its own particular risks, but you know you want the, those people to be thinking about the risks that they have to take care of, but also what are the bigger risks to the whole organization, whether you are IT people uh, worried you know, specifically about, say, access controls and cybersecurity, that's fine. That's what you should be worried about. But you want to be thinking more about things like, will the complexity of our IT system slow down workflows, which means we're less productive? Well, possibly. We don't necessarily know. What are the risks of building IT this way as opposed to that way or some other way? And if we don't know, well, you know, who would we loop in from the business units to show them our new system, and they could say this isn't going to work for us, and vice versa. Um, you know, and really how to break down these silos. I know that's a cliche, but that fits here. Uh, to be thinking about risk all the time. Um, to really have a risk awareness the same way people have and use email. They use it in all departments, in all ways, all the time. You want the same sort of awareness that permeates the whole thing. That's where they're trying to go with this, I think. So in the podcast, Matt, uh, Frank really talked about moving ERM directly into the organization. Uh, I think uh, I wrote down, how do you build this into the day-to-day -day operation? And that really sounded to me like operationalization, which of course is a new byword in, in compliance. Um, mm -hmm. it, I was wondering if you had any, uh, any examples or at least uh, theoretical examples that uh, you might share with us on how a uh, functional discipline within a corporation, whether it be internal audit, whether it be HR, whether it be IT, would really operationalize the ERM framework so that they could have a much broader view of risk beyond their department. Sure. I think um, one good example that had come to my mind just before we got on the uh, the podcast here 
was one of the big components of this ERM framework is risk governance and culture. Um, I would roughly compare that to the control environment that internal auditors think about with the internal control framework. But anyway, so let's get back to you know the ERM example. Big component, do you have the proper risk governance and culture? Well, what does that mean? One of the principles of that component is, uh, does the organization define desired behaviors? Now, I happen to be talking about compliance training not long ago, where we were talking about how do you measure the effectiveness of a compliance program and of your compliance training. Well, to measure the effectiveness, you actually have to have an outcome that you want to see achieved by this training. You know, I think a lot of compliance officers would say, well, our completion rate is 100%, so we'll just pass that off as that's our effectiveness measure. It's not an effectiveness measure. It is an activity measure. But do you want your training to lead to the outcome of more calls to the whistleblower hotline or more allegations and incidents filed? Because if it's a new compliance program, maybe you do. Maybe getting people to speak up more often is the goal. And that's that's the desired outcome that this principle gets at. And there you would translate that in compliance training into before we roll out our training, let's figure out what it is that the outcome that we want to achieve. And then we can start to measure our progress towards this effectiveness. And let's get even more granular when, Tom, you and I have talked about the Justice Department guidelines from back in February, looking at the effectiveness of a compliance program, they zeroed right in on, are you measuring the effectiveness of your compliance program? You measure it against the outcomes you want to achieve, which if you have a good risk governance and culture, you're already thinking about what are the outcomes we want to achieve in all ways. Well, in the compliance training way, that might be you know, an example, like I said, more calls to the hotline or um, greater or maybe reduced number of exception requests on travel and entertainment budgets you want to blow on some foreign government official in China, things like that. But you know, it, it all does tie together in tangible ways that you could then present to a regulator and show we are well governed. We have managed our risks. And by definition, therefore, that means our compliance program is also effective and here's how we're doing it. Very simple example, but it's that kind of stuff that I think we would want to see this get put to work. So if I understood you correctly, it's not the management of or it's not foreseeing what the risk could be, but it's breaking down those risks into your functional discipline and then trying to manage that within your discipline so that it doesn't really explode or expand out to the greater corporation? That's certainly one way of doing it, yeah. And you know, there are, like I said, there are going to be 20 principles in the final framework. Um, I only have the original list of 23, and I don't know which three are going out. So I'm a little bit hesitant to start spouting off other principles. But things like um, some of the other principles are defining your risk appetite um, or an acceptable variation in performance that would be uh, like, say, a risk around a performance goal. Um, you know, would you necessarily want to see some exception requests granted, or if, you know, some people do violate a policy without submitting an exception request first, you know, is it okay to do that one out of a thousand times? Do you still have an effective program or is it one out of two times? I don't know that that would qualify, but, you know, think through and define 
what are we trying to achieve? Where, what are the ways we might fail? Which ways that failure might be out of our comfort zone or not? Um, you know, I'm talking about compliance programs and how you might explain that to a regulator. But certainly, if you and I were writing for HR magazine today, we'd have very different examples about relevant to HR. Uh, likewise, for IT risks or cybersecurity risks or anything like that. But they really do want, I think, organizations to step back and consider what is our bigger picture here uh, in a more reflective way. So there's a couple of other uh, things that came cl- uh, or came through loud and clear to me in uh, in the podcast and in your piece was that we really have to separate out separate out the risk conversation from the internal control conversation. And I'm frankly I'm not sure I really understood that as directly as I do now, at least uh, from the first uh, iteration of the uh, ERM framework. And they really are complementary, but they're separate. And they're not designed uh, to, uh, they do interact, but they really need to be thought of as separate mechanisms uh, to manage uh, risk going forward. Is that correct as well? I I think that is what COSO and other thought leaders, probably including me, um, would like companies to do and to see. Uh, You know, what COSO really was trying to do with the ERM framework here, and I'll jump the gun a bit and talk about the graphic that they're using to portray this and how they're going to change it. Um, In the original proposed framework, they had uh, the COSO risk management framework principles as something that you go through. It was like a rainbow that you go under, and somewhere over the rainbow you achieve enhanced performance. You know, it's a bit corny, but I saw where they were going with that. But they realized that the way they portrayed this image, and it's on my blog on radical compliance, people can take a look at it. That made ERM seem like a separate thing that, you know, it's a phase company activity goes through. And once you're done, all risks have been managed. Therefore, I can just run along willy nilly to the end. That's not at all what COSO wanted. They want risk awareness more to be built in all the way through. And so there wouldn't be a phase of risk management that you go through. It's, you know, 10 years ago, people would say to me a lot, well, I've done SOX compliance. Does that mean I've done risk management? No, not at all, because there's all sorts of non-SOX risks that a company might encounter. Um, you know, They're going to replace this image with what they call a more DNA-like structure, not quite sure what that means. I know from biology class, it's some sort of double helix that wraps around your business transaction. I'm curious to see what the final graphic will look like, but they're really trying to say that risk awareness and thinking through risks at all times and being aware of when they're fluctuating into a red zone or when they're still in the green and you can keep going. That's something that everybody should be doing. Um, Likewise, I suspect COSO would say that this is not something for a chief risk officer to take command of, and then nobody else has to care about risk management. Um, That was another fad that I heard about several years ago, that companies would have a chief risk officer to worry about risk and risk management, and then nobody had to worry about risks anywhere else. That's not at all what we want to do. 
Now, for those of you listening in the banking sector who say, well, we have a chief risk officer, that person is more about currency fluctuation risks and whatnot, and you know, foreign currency exposures, um, insurance coverage, things like that. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an awareness of business risks all the time that you know, you can't assign worrying about risk and what might go wrong to one person at one time, and then everybody else can forget it. That is absolutely the opposite of what we're trying to get at here. So the um, you did touch on the on the change in the diagram, and I'll have to say you're you're a, a donut, as I think you initially characterized. It really st- st- stuck st- struck me because it stuck with me, and it was an easy visual for me to uh, to see, uh, particularly uh, in the in the home of Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, mm-hmm. Nevertheless, uh, I actually. A, a double helix DNA makes a lot of sense to me, so I'll be interested to see how they do that because it, it does seem to me to be certainly signify more ongoing and day-to-day work and continued operationalization of, of managing your risk across uh, the enterprise. Um, there was one other thing that, frankly, I was uh, a little touched by, um, or I should say uh, probably not touched, but I was pleased that um, that COSO and PwC took this commentary uh, from practitioners to heart, and that was one of the five components was named risk in execution. And um, I think it was Bob Hirth uh, in, in his remarks that uh, you cited that they uh, found that that name just did not work outside the United States. And I was wondering uh, if you could talk through that. And, and I really thought that was a great example of COSO listening to practitioners and, and really moving away from a U.S.-centric sort of everything. Well, you know, it really was just a lost in translation sort of a moment that as COSO went around to audiences around the world and a lot of people all over the world had supported and fed into and given input to COSO as they were doing this. Um, a lot of non-English speaking audiences basically said execution risk to them is much more about getting executed. And uh, the metaphor doesn't necessarily translate there. So I do know they're going to change the name of that component. It's going to be something around risk in performance. Um, exactly what? I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, they they do want to get to not just, you know, they're, the big components are things like risk awareness in the governance, in the culture. Um, there are some of the others I can pull up in a second here. I know that, you know, risk information, risk communication, managing performance or risks in performance management and execution risk, really, if we want to get away from that word is, you know, the risk that when you're doing it, you're not going to succeed. What is it? Well, that will vary from company to company and division to division, but more, um, you know, the risk in not achieving that which you're going to try to achieve. Um, so, yeah, I, we, we can look forward to that change as well. And I guess if we could maybe end on uh, what I would really think was a, a really a positive note, Matt, you wrote in your piece about a chief audit executive which you, uh, he wor- who works at what you characterize as a rather acquisitive company. And yep. um, you use that as an example to talk about uh, the integration uh, or co- combination of both strategy and integration of risk management. And I was wondering maybe if you could just take it from there, because I found that example to be as propitious as really anything you had uh, in your piece today. 
Yeah, it was a really good point that this guy raised. Um, he works uh, at a highly regulated, um, I'll, I'll say, telecom infrastructure company uh, that they did do a big acquisition several years ago where uh, the chief audit executive was aware of it, but he wasn't you know, in the inner councils trying to figure out what is our strategy going to be to acquire this company and then integrate them. Um, and the company did double the size of its uh, employee base, number of states it was operating in, and uh, greatly expanded the actual products it was offering customers. So that's a big, big change. And the integration of that has proceeded. Uh, it has not proceeded entirely smoothly, but it hasn't been a disaster by any means. But my associate there, he did go say that he'll be able to take this risk management framework, which really emphasizes things like execution risk or performance risk, whatever we call it, but risks in execution, um, setting strategy and setting objectives and assessing the risk to achieving those. You're going to be able to take that and go to the inner council and say, when we acquire the next company, which I'm sure this is a very large telecom company, they, I'm sure they will do another big integration. Uh, you know, when they acquire the next company, bring me into the loop earlier because you did not bring it to me before and we had a lot of difficulty. We did it your way. Now look at this way I'm recommending. Let's see if we can make it work more smoothly. That is a great example of how to take the um, framework and really use it in a very practical sense for compliance and audit executives to get a seat at the strategic management table. Um, so I wish him luck. And uh, it does sound like a very good example of how to get this framework and you know get get some worth out of it. So Matt, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but uh, this has been just a fascinating uh, conversation, and uh, really uh, applaud you for uh, the podcast, uh, interviewing Frank, and uh, going to hear Bob speak on this. Uh, I was rather stunned. I think at the end of the podcast, when uh, Frank said that they're still looking at a June release date, which seems to me to be, since it's uh, we're recording this on May 30, uh, fairly aggressive. But uh, if he thinks that's a doable goal, I'm really looking forward to having this this summer that uh, we can talk yeah. about and work with. Uh, you know, and Bob Hirth also said that they expected to get it out by late June, mid-July. That would coincide with the end of Bob Hirth's three-year term as COSO chairman. It would be a great sort of final hurrah for him. They've worked very hard at it. And Bob is a great guy, very, very much supporting the, the cause of good ethics, compliance and governance. So we'll see. And once it's out for sure, there'll be more. And I'm sure we can talk about it again. Well, Matt, as always, thank you. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. All right, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I have two requests. The first is if you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also get the word out about the only podcast which takes a deep dive into risk governance and technology. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to email either myself or Matt. You can reach Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.